All right, everyone, welcome back to another round of edition of On the Margin. Today, I am joined, as always, by my youthful co-host, Mr. Ah. Mark Yuska. And it's youthful because he is the one down at Bitcoin Miami, and I'm the one being an old part up here in New York. There welcome, you Mark. go. There you go. I'm <laughs> down here hanging down, hanging out with the kids. And, uh, you know, obviously, I had to dress the part. So I got I got the Bitcoin orange pants on today. And uh, I do have the on-chain monkey sock game. So... Uh, and it's because Danny Yang, the founder of Metagood, is down here. They had an ordinals conference yesterday. It's a pretty big deal. No kidding. A whole conference huh. dedicated to ordinals. And uh, you know, he inscribed the whole 10,000 OCM collection on to a single uh, inscription using like only 200K of space. So it was pretty amazing technological feat. And uh, he was down giving a talk about that. So yeah. shout out to the OCM crew. So what is the sort of Bitcoin orthodox thinking on ordinals these days? I, Whoa. You know, I sort of read <laughs> it depends my, who you talk to. Yeah, because my read in the beginning, right, there were a couple of the sort of thought leaders that came out and said, hey, this is not necessarily good. Maybe we should censor these sort of non-legitimate transactions. But now I feel like there's been a little bit of a rebirth around the Bitcoin block space talk. So I'd just yeah. be curious, what do people think? Look, I th- it, it, it seems silly to me to argue against um one of the the primary purposes of of a, of a blockchain is to be a secure safe store of of value right um transactions you know ownership of of you know an item uh in fact you think about it, the very first thing on the bitcoin blockchain is an image and it's an image of the, you know, chancellor bailing out the banks or the exchequer bailing out the banks for the second time, um, you know, issue of the FT, um, not the FT, whatever, the, the, the London Times, London Times. Yeah. But so I think there are a lot of people that are like, oh, you know, you know, it's, it's perverting the, the original intention of a peer to peer, you know, cash network because transaction fees are going up. I'm like, well, let's think about this, y'all. Um, why are transaction fees going up? Demand. Demand's rising. Supply is fixed. So transaction fees go up. Okay. So that means, yeah, that, that means you can't transfer a few sats for as cheaply as you could. But that's not the primary use case for the Bitcoin blockchain. It's not right. going to be where you and I exchange sats to go get ice cream. Um it may be the ultimate settlement layer for all of those transactions, but there's going to be something else on top if we want it to be money in terms of, of transactional. Same way Visa batches transactions and then settles to Fedwire on a periodic basis. So I, I think it faded a little bit. Um, but, you know, look, a maxi, a true maxi, like someone who, who really believes that the only thing Bitcoin is good for is to hold it in your hands really hard and maybe put it on a, a thumb drive and then you bury it in your backyard. And I can convince them that anything else other than that is, is good. I don't understand those people. I, I mean, I really don't. We've talked about this before. If that's what people think Bitcoin is, then we can all just go find another job because that's gold. I, we don't need to reinvent, you know, something that just sits idle and does nothing. Um, but to have a, a blockchain which is a ledger, a public ledger 
that is super, super secure, right? We'll, we'll all probably agree, I think, that the Bitcoin blockchain is the most secure blockchain, is the most secure network. Why wouldn't we want that to hold the highest value assets, titles, identities? You know, seems seems like the the logical use case to me. Yeah, I I find it pretty interesting. I I do think there's something a little bit oxymoronic, or it actually it kind of brings up a pretty interesting debate about uh, permissionless. It's Bitcoin is sort of the original app chain, right? It has a very specific feature. It wants to be money. That's that's mm -hmm. an application. Yeah. And but it's also open and permissionless. And if you think about that for a couple of seconds, it's like, well, how can I want it to be this one specific thing, but also have it be permissionless and anyone can build anything on it? And this this has been manifested around. I guess this is a very old debate around uh, opcodes and the sort of data that you can inscribe on Bitcoin. For those of you who like didn't follow this whole debate, there was a big upgrade a couple of um, uh, years ago called Taproot, and that basically relaxed a certain type of data that you could in that the, the restrictions around data that you can inscribe on a blockchain. Ordinal theory was kind of this new and inventive way to inscribe more arbitrary data on the Bitcoin blockchain. And yeah. for the reason I the reason I like this is first of all, look, I kind of like the idea of Bitcoin as the sovereign store value, kind of only financial transactions. I can see that appeal. I get it. But I also am of the belief generally let the market do what it wants to do and don't rely on sort of central planning. And so I like that. And then the other thing is for those of you who aren't like in the weeds of how Bitcoin functions, there are two ways that miners get paid. Miners are the ones that secure the network, right? They post up the collateral in the form of machines and electricity. They have two ways they get paid. One is a block subsidy, and that's the inflation schedule of Bitcoin. Bitcoin emits, the network emits a certain number of Bitcoins to reward miners for the work they do. That's gradually going down and going away. The other thing that they get is transaction fees, and that's actually fees for including or ordering or whatever uh, transactions. And that, the problem for Bitcoin for a long time has been the vast majority of how miners get paid is this block subsidy. Yeah, when that goes away, people are saying, hey, this this is in trouble. You guys are in trouble. Like the transactions are the miners. Yeah, and how you got to incent the miners. And now you can, you can actually see post BRC20, which is this new standard. It's, you know, the transaction fees, I think for the first time ever went above the the block subsidy. Yep. So this could yep. be a solution to Bitcoin's eventual security problem. And, and it's just kind of cool. Do you, you really going to hate on people inscribing wizards? I, I just, you know, I, I, again, it, it's what people are going to, haters are going to hate, right? That, that That's just, that's just life. Haters are going to hate. And no matter what you say or what you do, they're, they're just going to hate. And yeah, and that's fine, right? I, I, I have no time actually for those people. Um, I got lots of time for creators, innovators, people who are trying to move the the uh, whole community forward. And so I love people like Danny Yang who said, okay, yeah, I understand. You know, there's some concerns about the size of an inscription. So don't, don't be inefficient in how you do this. And they found a way to, you know, inscribe an entire 10,000 PFP collection into a couple hundred K. That's yeah. awesome. So yeah, it's actually it's the the one thing I will say that makes this a little bit, let's call it politically tricky, is this taproot upgrade sort of subsidized this one specific set of data called witness data. And that's where ordinals are being inscribed. So yeah. actually, in a funny way, these NFT sort of arbitrary data inscriptions are being are generating way less fees. Essentially, the network is subsidizing them. And that 
you could make a pretty strong uh, argument yeah. that that's not what the Bitcoin blockchain wants. However, another value of the Bitcoin blockchain is once it makes its way into the code, very difficult to change. You need some yeah. sort of fork to change those rules. Well, but that goes and, to your point about the free markets, Michael. Uh -huh. That, you know, Taproot happened. We all embraced, well, not all. Like there was, there were fights about that. Should this happen? Should it not happen? But your point, once it happens, okay, that exists. The fact that somebody innovated around Ordinal's protocol and BRC20, that's the nature of innovation. Yeah. People take opportunities. And would I like to pay less or more, generally speaking, mm -hmm. for a service? Less yeah. is better. Now, I'll pay more if I get good service or good. But if I have a choice, I'm, I'm going to pay less. And there are a lot of, a lot of examples in this world where um, a system subsidizes yeah. different elements, right? And so, I, but I think it's a great point. Great point. Yeah. Eventually, I don't want to get too, I've got some more macro questions for you here, but, but eventually I do think, especially on layer one blockchains that are supposed to be credibly neutral, the Bitcoins, the Ethereums, probably eventually the Solanas of the world. Then when I think what you're going to see is when you start to tinker with incentives, there's going to be yeah. an enormous political element attached to that. A great example of this is in Ethereum, these sort of data blobs where you're making call data for rollups cheaper. And that's good. Everyone agrees with that, right? That's the that's the um, that's the on the roadmap for how Ethereum is going to scale. But really, what that is is it's a subsidy, and it's sure. you know there are going to yeah. be political fights about that. It'll be fun to watch in the future. Let's... There will always be fights. Look, and that's and and that's the perfect segue: politics, geopolitics, macro. Um, you know, could we have? Uh, I, I won't say a crazier time. We've had crazy times in the past, but. Um, Man, I I am I am struggling with the the geopolitics of of what's going on, and we had this amazing webinar yesterday. Yeah. Um, we had one of our yeah, our China team got one of our managers that focuses on and only invests in the semiconductor space in yeah. in China and Taiwan, um, and he just did a masterclass on how the semiconductor industry is is changing and and what the real issue is between China and Taiwan and the US and it was absolutely fascinating I mean, and uh at the end of the day he was very circumspect about it and he's like um you know the growth in any market wh whatever that market is uh is going to to your point is going to drive the innovation and China is growing really fast on a relative basis Good. compared to every place else. And they have said, okay, I seed the high-end level integrated circuit design functionality to y'all in the US and, and the Netherlands, right? You're the best at that. We're not going to try to, to replicate that. But in terms of the manufacture of the, the lower end actual circuits themselves, the chips, yeah, we're going to win because we have better production capabilities. We are the manufacturing engine of the world. And despite all the rhetoric and the tariffs and the exports out of China to the rest of the world continue to move up exponentially and they win. They just, they just win. 
And so yeah. all this nonsense about, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to ban all these companies. We're going to blacklist these companies like they don't care. In, in some yeah. ways, I, it's like I posted that, you know, Bitcoin actually doesn't care if Gary Gensler tries to ban it. Yeah. He, it, it, it that you know, not he, she, but it, the the, the entity, just doesn't care. Wow. It's going to continue to do what it does in a decentralized way, and in the same way in, in the semiconductor space, China is going to do what they do best, and that's make stuff. So yeah, which is so, very interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm also so I sort of view this great power competition as this black hole which is pulling almost everyone and everything into it and shaping a lot of worldviews and it's driving mm -hmm. it's like the one there are two bipartisan issues in United States politically spend more money and we don't like China and that is exactly. like, that's the two things that everyone agrees on and people really view things through this lens of uh of and of like competition with China but let's yeah. talk about rate markets here for a second so I, I would love to get your thoughts on I think so if you're following along visually here you can see that basically um, what the market thinks, the implied rate policy basically turns post-June of this year, and we start to descend into uh, cut territory, um, which was really just ramps up through uh, January of 2024. So, Mark, do you, do you roughly agree with this? And maybe we could get into, there are a couple, uh, Stan Druckenmiller gave a great interview, I think I referenced it on, on our roundup, but Paul Tudor Jones uh, spoke this week as well and gave an interview. And those guys are legends, 100%, some of the smartest guys to ever do it. <laughs> I do want to caveat and say, like, you know, sometimes there there might be, you know, ulterior motives for getting on and speak on CNBC as well. But I always listen when, when those guys of talk. Course. I just love to hear what they have to say. And Paul Tudor Jones gave this interview where he mentioned that yeah, we're, we're near the end of this hiking cycle and he sees stocks ending higher this year. So with all that as a lead in, what, what, do, what do you think about this um, projection? Uh, I, I think the projection is, is aggressive, um, but it's always aggressive, right? If you go back and you look at, at this projection for rate hikes, it was always aggressive. Um, the market, I don't know, in, in, I think people are overconfident in their ability to uh, forecast particularly yeah. forecast the the activities of other people where you really don't have any control. And so I, I think that's part of it. So if, if you go back and you look at just about any chart on rates over time, whether it's the, the Fed uh, themselves with their dot plot and what they said they were going to do with policy, you know, which was always way more aggressive than what actually happened because uh, timing was different uh, or the 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 futures market kind of discounting i will say the futures market is more accurate than the participants you know pundits at the different investment banks are usually really bad uh i said the fed themselves been really bad i think these markets these implied rates are are actually more accurate i i struggle with the aggressiveness of cuts given no um, declaration of slowdown or recession, no uh, give on analysts forecasting higher 
profits. I mean, someone came out yesterday, it was like, AI is gonna, you know, uh, increase S&P profits. I think they said like 30%. Like on what planet is AI? And yeah, we've all seen the, the meme, I'm sure of, of the, you know, handing the CEO his talking points. Say we're integrating AI. We're integrating AI. No matter what business <laughs> you are, you can be Dairy Queen. We're integrating AI. We're going to mix your, you know, your upside down, you know, milkshake. Uh, I think I can't remember what it's called. The blizzard. Um, blizzard. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna mix your blizzard with AI. I mean, are you joking? So I, if you're if you're the the, the rate setting company, and things are good. Right, things are good. Meaning, we're expanding, profits are doing doing well, companies doing well, households are good. How do you cut interest rates? Why do you cut interest rates? That's wow. that's not the normal reaction when things are good. When do you normally cut interest rates? When things are tough and you're trying to re-stimulate um, an economy, yeah. and the other thing, I I don't really understand how, how they're going to walk this tightrope is the budget and the deficit. We're still talking trillions with a T back to your, you know, the th thing that they definitely agree on. We need to spend more money, wow. especially need to spend more money for the people in my district, right? Whatever I, you know, if I live, yeah. if, if I'm in you know, Maryland, we need, to, we need to spend more money on fishing boats, crabbing boats. If I'm in California, we need to spend more money on, on uh, you know, stopping wildfires. I mean, wh whatever it is, it spending money is is there, and someone's got to buy those bonds. That, I think, is not an environment for um, aggressive rate cutting. I I just don't don't see it. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the one that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So, because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in PODS20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of, I'm sort of in your camp here. I think the, you know, there's the old, the old, old chestnut, right? That the bond market is always right. And bond market doesn't have such a hot track record these last 18 months. And I think this is probably because we're at this weird transition point where we've got inflation, real inflation for the first time in 40 years. And there's yep. not a lot of living memory of that, right? Most of the people who are probably operating in financial yeah. markets today, they haven't seen an environment like this, at least not in the United States. So I think it's just kind of throwing everyone for a loop in terms of expectation. Probably a little bit of, probably a strong dose of opium that's, that's added to that oh, cocktail the as well. crazy. No, Michael, yeah. all, all of the gain, like all of it. <laughs> this year in inequities is multiple expansion on declining earnings right literally yeah, earnings are going down and multiples are expanding yeah. and i think 50 plus percent 
of the gain is five or six stocks in, in the Fang Man. And, you know, Netflix was up 10% yesterday. A 10%, so two days ago, if people listen to this on Saturday, but, but 10% on what? On an announcement that the growth of their lower price ad supported business was going fast. So I'm like, so your the cannibalization of your high margin business is going faster than you thought. That's and somehow different. that was good. I, yeah. I, 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 Netflix, I was a whole, I was one of the first stocks I ever bought. I'm not sure if I've told you that, but yeah, I, I, I got it in 2016 or 2017. I think 140 bucks was my cost base that I wrote it. And my, my, the whole thesis of the time was very simple. It was right around the time that they were starting to expand internationally. And I was just thinking there's a gigantic market out there as one does. And it did. And Netflix for a little while, if you held it or if you paid attention to it, didn't, you know, during these earnings reviews, they had always talk about the revenue of the EBITDA, but really it was the subscription number. And really it was the international subscription number. And they just clobbered expectations for three or four years. It was every single quarter. It was a beat and the stock would rip 10 or 15%. On top of that, every once in a while, they would jack the price up by, you know, a dollar, which was about 10% and stock would go 15, 15%, you know, sometimes. And then kind of just woke up and looked at that number of subscribers they had 200 million and i i view it more on a household basis because households subscribe to netflix not really individuals yeah it's like yeah. man that's got to be close to saturating the market and then they they announced that they were doing they were going to do video games and i sold the stock that's like i they might they might execute on that but i think their no, growth and, engine and, has run and out listen, and, listen to these numbers right in second quarter of of last year they did eight billion in revenue, uh, yeah. and they actually made a little money. They made a billion uh-huh. and a half dollars. Okay, it's, it's pretty good. Third quarter, a little less than eight billion dollars of revenue, so it went down. Didn't go up, yeah. went down, and they made about the same amount of money, a little little less. Then fourth quarter last year, um, went down again, seven point eight billion dollars, yeah. and they didn't make any money. So they went from making a billion and a half dollars to not making any money because they had to, you know, subsidize through ad spending, I guess. Um, and, you know, that's one of these games things, right? Where they give the stuff away for free. You get a bunch of subscribers who then cancel after four months, but they get to count them as subscribers. So I don't know. I'm, why would you, would anyone pay, let me get their, their multiple. Um, why would you pay? 40 times, four zero, 40 times earnings for a company whose revenues aren't growing. They're, they're flat to declining. Yeah. We, we live in the upside down because I could go through a hundred big stocks that are acting this way as they're, be, they're becoming viewed as, as a safe haven at any price. And look, Howard Marks has, has a line that I repeat all the time. I repeat a lot of his lines all the time. But one of his lines that I love is, look, there's no investment good enough that you can't screw up by paying too high a price. Yeah. Not one, right? There's no business good enough that you can't mess up by just paying too much. 
And I think that's where we are. We're, we're back to, a, and here's the crazy thing. Interest rates are higher today than they were three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago. Correct? Right? I'm pretty sure that's a 100% accurate statement. So if, you're, if your discount rate's rising, why would you pay a higher multiple? It's nonsensical. Uh, it kind of is nonsensical. And maybe one thing, to, I mean, look, markets move at a rate that is different from the rate of human perception. As in, sometimes we can spot a trend and it just takes you lo- takes longer to get there and you're confused and hemming and hawing and why is this happening? So I think, yeah, I, I'm sort of in the camp with you and I'm looking at this and thinking, I don't think at least traditional markets haven't taken their medicine. So one explanation for what we're describing here is Netflix did, it was a bloodbath in 2022. I mean, as bad as it was for yeah. crypto, yeah. the big tech giants, I mean, they, yeah. you know, their yeah. stock fell out of the sky. If you remember, yeah. Bill Ackman bought it. He had to turn around right and sell it. It was, it was a bad year. So yeah. there's some amount of mean reversion that happens after a stock goes down, whatever it did. I don't have the numbers, but sure. it's a no, no, no. Or, no it, it's a great point. Meta is a great example, right? I mean, yeah went down reversion. 50 plus percent. Um, and, and look, part of, part of the problem is, is we still have this massive passive, so not, not alliteration, but, but oh. okay, fine. Massive passive, uh, world where, you know, every two weeks money from people's 401ks and 403bs goes into these S and P 500 index funds. And it doesn't get to think about valuations. It doesn't get to think about, you know, is this a good business or a bad business at this point? It just has to buy them based yeah. on their capitalization weighting. And th- this is probably the scariest stat I've seen. And I don't really know how to deal with it other than just not participate is the, the weighting of Apple plus Microsoft, which are two great companies. They're great companies. But the weighting of those two is now over 14% oh. of the U.S. stock market. I, I can't think of a time in history where that level of concentration has led to positive returns over a meaningful time frame. Now, people would oh, but the last two years has been great. Fine. You know what? Yeah, because we've lived in the upside down of, of this transition from you know, the nirvana of zero interest rates and therefore everything is worth infinity, right? Because if I divide anything by zero, it's infinity. So, okay. Um, To, well, I mean, everything that I look at, whether it's credit card delinquencies spiking, whether it's, you know, travel activity falling Uh, off, whether it's, Home ownership <laughs> collapsing, you know, home home buying, home transactions collapsing, shows that there's been real impact on the average person of this spike in inflation, as you described. And yet, a certain number of businesses can still paint a picture of, oh, we're we're making a lot of money. Well, yes, everyone's renewing their their subscription to, you know, 365, Office 365 or whatever. 
okay. And, you know, they said they're going to introduce this AI thing into Microsoft. I don't know. I haven't heard very much really good about it um, from the people who are are using it. I tried Bing once. Didn't do anything for me. So, you know, they invested $10 billion. I think I think we talked about this. They they invested ten billion in OpenAI, but their market cap went up half a trillion. Mm-hmm. Are, are they going to make half a trillion dollars on Bing? I, I I'm gonna I'm call no. I'm gonna say no. Yeah, I th- I mean this is also it's just this is what happens when markets overreact to new technologies that are super interesting, right? We talked about this with Chegg. That was sort of the first. I'm sure there are others too. AI is going to pop up in or- earnings calls the same way blockchain used to pop up in earnings oh, calls. Oh, the spike was crazy. I mean, it was yeah. absolutely crazy. The market will overreact to winners and losers, assume things are going to happen in two years. It's nothing's going to happen in two years. Those prices will revert. And then there will be a slow, steady grind in that direction. Oh, did, that, did you see C3 AI? Do mm-hmm. you know this company? No. So there's a, there's a company called C3 AI and they were called yes. C3 AI before AI, because that's the other thing. AI is not new. Yeah. 1950 yeah. was when the term was kind of coined and coming to the lexicon. So 53 years been working on AI, but this company, and I, I, I don't know if they're based in North Carolina, but they advertise a lot in North Carolina. And so the airport, you have these big signs all over, C3 AI. The stock was just going because they don't make any money. Like they lose boatloads of money. But when the AI thing hit, when ChatGPT came out, this stock went up. I, I, I mean, I, I should look at the number. It was, it was just, it was nuts. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. And then people are like, well, what do they do? They're a consulting firm. And it reminds me of what happened. There was this company back in the dot-com boom. And what they, did, they were a little consulting company and they, they helped companies changed their name to .com. And we actually invested in this company, believe it or not. And our cost basis was 50 cents, 50 cents. It went public at $100. Yeah. Okay. 200 times. And I remember calling the the venture capitalist we invested with. And I said, you know, what should we do? We, we, you know, got the stock back distributed. He says, I'm an insider. I'm a board member. I really can't talk about it. But I can say two things. Okay. Revenue, six million. Market cap, six billion. Like, oh, I, I gotta go. I gotta sell, 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 sell. And we sold. And the stock went to four. Now, at four, it still would have been an eight-bagger. Still would have been a good investment. But that the the hype, I mean. Can you can you believe that hype? Or, or we can go Long Island Ice or Long Island Ice Tea, Long Island Blockchain. Yeah, and you but know, there's there's the signal in that, you know. And I think oh I God. really think. Look, I I know maybe for some folks on this on this who are listening, they're gonna think this is silly. But I used to just look at that and say, that's a bubble, man. These crazy people. What are this they thinking? Bubble. Yada yada. A fool assumed part of it was money. Now I I sort of still think that, but I do think bubbles are indicative. They tend to actually be directionally right. You know, things that inspire that much euphoria and enthusiasm generally are actually directionally right. They're just wrong on the timing. And I great think that's insight. the tricky yeah, thing. That's a great insight. Yep. 
it's, you know, you see it in crypto cycle after cycle. And there is this, you know, if you're sort of deep in the weeds on crypto, I do think one, one smaller trend that tends to be true is the sort of hypiest part of a bull market that everyone just fades and says that was ridiculous ends up getting reworked and ends up being the driver for the next bull market. Best example I can think about that is ICOs. I mean, ICOs, yeah. everyone was like, you wrote it off. Token was a dirty word for a while. And then they they rejiggered that that sort of um, capital raising mechanism and it drove the next cycle. But I, I want to I want to just like put on our speculation caps for a second here and, and ask you um, my favorite. We talk, might have talked about this last week, but uh, I was talking to some friends, friends about this, and I have some more opinions on it. But this there was this great quote that resonated with me just having worked in crypto for a number of years now, which is Sam Druckenmiller talks about I'm paraphrasing. But basically, when you make interest rates zero percent, people do stupid things. When you hold them at zero percent for 11 yep. years, people do really stupid things. Really. Stupid. And I. I am in the camp that I don't think we've seen people take their take their medicine yet. And I'm sort of wondering, okay, so we know that there's stress in the banking sector, but we also know post-2008, there was a lot of regulation that basically moved risk-taking that banks wanted to do out into kind of this broader shadow banking sector, alternative mm -hmm. lending and financing centers. And yep. for me, that's the part where I... I just feel like it's natural to think that's where this the next bit of stress is going to come from. But I don't know exactly where. Commercial real estate is the obvious one. Yeah. But the fact that everyone thinks that it's going to be commercial real estate makes me think it's probably going to be something else. Have you thought at all about it? If you oh, want no, to no, speculate, no. Again, like, where do you think it's going to come from? It, again, it's, it's, it's the right analysis. It's, it's that second order thinking, right? I mean, maybe one of the most important things that is the most important. The most important thing in investing is second order and, and third order thinking, right? If if you just think about the headline or the the primary trend, it, you know, it's already in the price. I mean, that's that's what everybody already knows. It's that ability to 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 do the second order thinking. Like, okay, we had stress in banks in the global financial crisis. And the response was very draconian legislation. You shed that entire unit. You can't do that anymore. We're going to separate this iBanking and banking. And okay, did iBanking stop happening? No. Where did it go? Where did prop trading go? You can't prop trade at Goldman Sachs anymore. Well, in theory, Goldman still prop trades, by the way, because um, they get an exemption, I guess. Um, but so does JP Morgan. But Okay, the rules apply to everybody else except except them. But but it had to go somewhere. People are still speculating. People are still proprietary trading. They're using leverage. Where did it go? Okay, well, let's think about where did it go. Or the, your point on, on real estate. Okay, people are still buying real estate on leverage. So where did they get the loans? Well, let's look at that. Well, one, one place you have actually seen it where it's like everybody knows, well, commercial real estate's got to be getting whacked. I mean, 350 California selling for 70% off. That's got to get reflected somewhere. REITs, commercial, you know, uh, office REITs, eviscerated. Okay. Well, where else? Um, the uh, uh, non-bank lenders, you know, peer-to-peer -peer lenders and, and like eviscerated. Okay. Um, but where else? Offshore? Banking, 
kind of sectors. Um, people, you know, maybe went and got something from Deutsche Bank or, or Credit Suisse, gone. Um, so I think there has been damage in these places that kind of said, well, you can't do prop trading at Goldman Sachs anymore, but but we're a Swiss bank. You, you can do that yeah. here. And, uh, you know, when when Trump was president, where do you, or before he was president, where do you get his big loans from? Deutsche Bank. Yeah. So, you know, look at Deutsche Bank's balance sheet. Look at their stock price. Hadn't been very good. So I... But I do think that that second derivative thinking is really, really important. And you know, just look at, at these second tier regional banks. Yeah. Wow. I mean, pounded. But you know, I saw somebody tweet yesterday, oh, KRE just made a bottom, you know, the 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 banking index. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, uh okay. I mean, you could declare that it made a bottom because it stopped going down. Um, and maybe it has, but has, has have the banks that made the loans on office buildings like the one that I'm in, which is basically empty, I mean, literally. And, you know, my team doesn't come in the office anymore. The guys downstairs don't come in the office anymore. At some point, we're all just going to say, you know, we don't need this space anymore. Um, that isn't in the price of, yeah. of those those you know local community banks. So I do see that rolling down. I guess what what could what could save this cycle? Um, the return of of free money. So. You know, if if bad capital allocation caused the, the really stupid things, and now it's time to pay the piper, we don't have any money to pay the piper. So what do we do? Well, I guess we can suspend disbelief again, and and go back to you know bad capital allocation world of low interest rates. And yeah, in that environment, and, and you know, it's funny. It, I think that's where this reversion of liquidity, you know, we, we, they, they actually have been sucking liquidity out of the system. Now, it slowed down and reversed pretty hard with the bailout of the banks. It wasn't QE, but it, it you know, theoretically it has to get paid back, but, you know, we'll see. But, but the balance sheet went down, then it spiked back up, and now it, it went down a little bit more. So they're not putting liquidity back into the system. Should they turn around and lower rates, that liquidity will certainly, you know, revert back. And and in that environment, it could be a really big risk on kind of, I mean, Paul could be right. You could, you could get a, we could get back to, to Looney Tune land or Sillyville or Silly Town or whatever I used to call it. I don't remember. Yeah. I, I don't know. I sort of have, I feel like I used to, I maybe in, in past times would have a prediction here, but I think it's just so complicated and so hard. I could kind of see it going either way, right? I have this looming, this mental framework that really dominates my way of thinking about this, which is just the amount of outstanding debt that the U S has. First of mm -hmm. all, debt when, when debt growth 
outstrips GDP growth. Something has to change over a period of time. And my, you know, you, I, you've talked about this at length. You know, many of you listening to this show will have kind of heard the different options. But to me, the one that I think is most likely is a soft default in the way of inflation. Basically, yeah. that's what I think. And yeah. I, I think that inflation ends up running hotter than interest rates. I don't know. At some sort of sustained period, there are probably ebbs and flows as to what that ratio looks like over the coming years. But I generally think that. So that's my sort of um, thesis for. But I, you know, I don't know how specific asset well, no, prices your, are going to react. Your insights, your instinct is is right. I mean, for a hundred plus years, the rate of inflation was roughly equal to not roughly. It was exactly equal to the short term interest rate, the risk-free yeah. rate, right? Yeah. So your your real return for leaving your money in cash was zero, uh-huh. right? And that made sense. Well, we went through a whole period where it was less than that. Math says we now have to have a period where that's reversed, which is what we have, you know, today. We have, you know, still at least right now, um, a a positive spread, and and it's shrinking, right? I mean, the the CPI number come down, and you know, interest rates kept going up. Now they're almost back to to that neutral level. But if you're going to cut rates, and that inflation doesn't res, re, recede, then you're going to have to and. If you think about a 10% average return, right? I think the you know, long-term return on stocks is 10.5% compounded over long, long periods of time. Let's just round it to 10 for evenness. And you have a decade like we had because of QE, where you compounded at 15. You have to, by definition, have a decade where you compounded five. Unless you're going to tell me that the 140-year trend of 10 and a half is somehow going to change. It's not, right? I mean, 140-year trend exists because it's a 140-year trend. And, and when you look at, at the regression line, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's perfect. Because there's a, there's a logic to why you get a 10.5% return, right? There, there are components to it. You have the risk-free rate that said long-term has averaged about 4%. That just has been the risk-free rate for you know, 100 plus years. So 4%. Then you get the credit premium, right? If, you, if, you, if you're a business, there's a, a 2% uh, advantage by taking credit risk as an investor, right? Because you might not get paid back. With the government, you're pretty sure you're going to get paid back. Um, so that takes you to, to six. And then there's another kind of four and a half, five percent for equity risk. Well, what's equity risk? Well, equity risk is the risk that there's no there there after you pay the bondholders back. And then the other way to think about it is if if I if I if I hold an equity, I get paid dividends. Now you know, they go up and down, but, but bottom line, you get, you get paid dividends. So yeah. if dividends average 2% over the long term, 
and you're getting 4% from inflation, then stocks should go up 6% in, in real terms if you got this 10.5% you know, rate of return. And that's actually what they've done. And so, but not every year. So some years you get less than that, some years you get more than that. And that's that human behavior piece, right? The collective euphoria or, or depression that, that people have. And right now people are back to euphoria because it's, well, and, and you know what? I'm going I'm to correct myself. It's not euphoria because it's, it's, they're not paying attention enough to have euphoria or fear because they're not pulling the trigger. It's the passive fund pulling the trigger, right? It's not the average retail person who's saying, you know, I'm going to buy Netflix at 40 times. The average person has no idea that Netflix trades at 40 times earnings. Yeah. No idea. Average person has no idea. My little brother who just, you know, sent me a note yesterday about NVIDIA. You know, is this, is this run real? Uh, dude, NVIDIA is a very good company. Incredibly good company. Is it worth 10 times revenue? Math says no, but everyone wants to own it because they hear about AI. So, but again, I, I'm not sure it is the, maybe with NVIDIA, there are a few people like my little brother who are speculating, so maybe. But yeah. for Apple, people aren't buying Apple because they think it's going to go up. It's because it's 7% of the index. And every time money goes in index, it has to buy 7% of Apple. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's so difficult to sort of predict and, you know, Mike Green's done a great job of highlighting the market dynamics of passive versus active. I don't know. I, this is one of those things where I hear, I understand the distortions. I understand the argument, right? Right. But also I kind of do like having access to just cheap. It's people, people view the stock market right now as a savings vehicle. I don't know how sustainable that is in the long term. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. What I, what I do think I, I here's, so I often kind of hear people talk about, oh, well, like Tesla's got a bust, right? Like Tesla, you know, there's still these speculative things going on, but that's not really what gets you in trouble. You know, usually the thing that causes panic is not when Tesla blows up because everyone kind of expects it to blow up or is like, yeah. this isn't realistic. It's when some storied firm XYZ, maybe it's a bank, maybe it's a BlackRock type fund, they were levered maybe they've got a large margin loan you know large loan that's margined by tesla and then they get in trouble but it's the things that it's like that old uh what's its face quote where it's not what you 
don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you think you know that just ain't so. Oh and yeah, I'm sure there's absolutely. I'm sure there's going to be some of that. One yeah. of the one of the um, areas that I you know I never hear people talking about this, and probably because there has to be a catalyst, and I'm sure this will be be wrong or not be proven out for a number of years. But one one area that to me just deserve like feels like it is ripe for this to happen is private equity. Just for because for as long as I do, private equity's been a money machine. Anything yeah. that's been a money machine for a while, people look at as invincible, sort of impregnable. But I don't know. Maybe I'm over extrapolating from what's happened, at least in our industry for the last two years. I used to look at that too. I'd say these guys are printing money, blah, blah, blah. Printing money leads to lack of discipline is what it leads to. It leads to a feeling of invincibility. And these guys have just, I mean, why has private equity been a bonanza for so long? Because interest rates have been a one-way street down. And I've asked this question to people, well, now interest rates are back up. Does that impact private equity? And the answer that I've got is no, it's actually somehow good for our business too. And that just doesn't make intuitive sense to me. If it was good on wow. the way down, it's going to be bad it's, on the way up. The yeah. cost of financing has gone up. So what happened to your returns? And um, I don't know. No, look, the, the instincts are they're 100% right. And, and the data corroborates your your thought pattern, right? Yeah. When, when lots of money gets raised and flows into a sector, private equity, uh -huh. venture capital, growth equity, uh, the returns for that vintage are low. Well, when do the most, when does the most capital flow into one of these areas after a period of poor returns or a period of good returns? Period of good returns. Good returns. Right? Of yeah. course. I mean, people chase, people, human beings do two things really, really well. They buy what they wish they would have bought spectacularly. I mean, the, the data that's the most damning for all of us as, you know, active investors um, is, you know, for 20 years, you said stocks make that, that 10 and a half, bonds make six. And, you know, so the average investor should have just done a 60-40 and, and done somewhere in the middle, right? Seven and a half, eight percent. The average investor made 2.9. What? How? All you had to do is pick one or the other or a mix. Yeah. But you know, they they didn't. And I you know, I, I I I was talking to Bill Miller. So, you know, Bill and and oh, yeah. Bill the fourth uh were are down here. You know, Bill Miller's a big Bitcoin believer and uh early adopter. And you know, I, I thought you I should was do one of these interviews guy. with us. Pardon? I've been, I've been, I've been, you should do one of these interviews with us. I would love to chat. Oh with my God. I, I, okay. I might be able to make that happen, but he, he's, yeah. I mean, he's just a legend, right? I mean, I, yes, I talk yeah. about him all the time and you know, my, my favorite story is right there, you know, the Amazon thing about how volatile it is and when was run time to sell never, but who actually bought it on the IPO and held it for the 26 years. So it was 26th anniversary last week. And we were talking about this and he, uh, there are five people in the world that and it's probably more than five, but it's Jeff, his mom, his dad, his ex-wife who got half of his and Bill and Bill's cost of Amazon was seven cents. <laughs> it adjusted seven cents. Yeah. And he's never sold a share. And he is the second largest owner, individual owner of Amazon. Why? Because he bought it and he never sold it. And he's kind of doing the same thing, Bitcoin now, but, but, the, the the thing that was that was funny about this we were talking about is it led to this conversation of well you know that that corroborates the fact that you know the best performing accounts at fidelity are the 
deceased accounts or abandoned accounts, they outperform everybody else by far. And it's because they don't do the stupid stuff that human beings do. Human beings do. And so we're in this time where we've got all these, these decisions that we have to make. And the real decision in some cases might be, you know, don't just do something, sit there. So that, that, that is a, a, a challenge for, for most of us. Yeah. It's, it's tough, right? It's easier said than done. Sometimes hurry up and wait is the most frustrating thing that you can be told. I, and just on that little prediction on private equity, I, I don't, I'm not saying that's going to happen now. I, I kind of, I'll, I'll just raise my hand and say I've got a little bit of a bias here. I started to see the world through this angle. I got sent a meme a little while ago that was like, do you ever have something that you used to really love, but now is shit? Well, you have private equity to thank for that. And they are, they're very good. They do this thing where they like look, they see a really great asset that maybe a local entrepreneur has done. Maybe there's a little bit of economic surplus. Is that dumb? Maybe that's being a good business owner because you have a long-term mindset. Private equity is very good coming in and extracting that value that exists between having a good experience and what people are absolutely willing to pay for. They they borrow leverage to close that gap. And that is what- No, no that's exactly it. But, but here's the thing. It's over in the sense of, and I don't, you know, we went from 8,000 listed companies to 4,000 listed companies. Well, what happened? They get taken over. Well, why did they get taken over? Why did they go private? Well, because the boomers, right, came back from the war and they created these businesses. Right? They started businesses, you know, car wash businesses and, and, you know, hairdresser businesses and, you know, travel businesses, just all these businesses. I mean, tons of businesses. And now those people are in their 70s and they want to sell. Well, who's the natural buyer? Private equity with, you know, a big portfolio and network and all and free money, leverage, free money. And so they, they quietly chipped away at all these public companies and, and took them private and, and merged and did bolt-ons and acquisitions and all this activity. You don't get to do that again, right? These guys at 75 didn't go start another business. They're, they're, they're not the serial entrepreneurs, right? They did their thing. And that's not replicable again. So, yeah, yeah I, I, we, we did this one. Uh, there's this little thing called Five Minute Oil Change. Literally, that's the name of the company. And, you know, the dad had it and they had two daughters and the daughters didn't want the company. They're like, dad, we want cash. So he sold it to private equity and we bought it and with this private equity firm. And then we sold it to another private equity firm at the height of the free money and made a bunch of money. But is that big private equity firm that paid 16 times EBITDA actually going to flip it to somebody for 20 times EBITDA? Nope. I don't yeah. BS on that. They're just not. Yeah. And now the one thing they could do, which I, I, I will say is, is possible for a few of the firms, do they have enough operating expertise to improve the business beyond what that original founder's vision, like his vision was, I want it to be a nice experience and, you know, because women are the ones that get their, you know, oil changed. And so we, we catered to the women and it really worked. 
can 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 this big private equity firm come in and say, oh, we're going to strip out this cost, we're going to strip out that, and we're going to we're going to do a bolt on. Maybe, maybe, but even that window of opportunity or set of opportunities dwindles because yeah. there's only so like HVAC was really hot. Everybody's buying HVAC companies because there's going to be this big building boom. Okay, but. Once everybody owns all the HVAC companies, you can't do it again. Um, so we'll see. But history tells us there's an inverse correlation between how much capital flows in and uh, how, what the vintage looks like. And I think you know the vintage from two years ago is, is not going to be a very good one for venture capital or buyouts. And um, the vintage right now, if you if you put new capital not necessarily just pitching my new fund and venture, yeah. but if you put new capital into this vintage, venture in particular, I think is going to be a spectacular vintage. Buyouts, yeah. tougher, but I still think will be better than two years ago, um, particularly in the small market, the, the, the smaller market, not the large market, because um, there's too much leverage in that space. Yeah. One, one day, maybe we can do a whole, the, the, the reason I was, by the way, they're just like anything else, right? There are there are great private equity funds who are For really sure. geared at like it's yep. it's a necessary thing too, right? At some point, like the venture kind of peters out, you need a new source of capital with a different return profile to come in. At some point, it's appropriate to put debt on a company. All that aside, there are great private story private equity firms that have created value for investors and customers mm -hmm. and companies like. So don't want to paint with a broad brush here. It's just I was sort of looking for this area that I got looking for an area where it's been really good. For really long yeah. money's been pouring in and the incentives we could do a whole episode i'm sure mark on just how price discovery happens in private versus public markets because it's a very different structure right for how mm -hmm. that all works and in like in some cases it works super well in some cases you probably have a little bit of an incentive to you know make things go up in in a sense too so that's you know i'm just i just love to you know get in the weeds of how that all works I, I mean, if you're if you got one private equity firm selling to another private equity firm, so he can get a multiple bump, so he can collect his incentive fee, and then they do a quid pro quo the other way. That's exactly oh. what I was gonna say. This is okay. So just to, I have brand. Well, Michael, that brand, would never happen. People yeah, yeah. Are far too scrupulous to ever happen. So, yeah, so Mark, that, just that, that to probably, just that probably happen. To, for, to paint a picture in the audience, imagine an example here where you, you're a private equity fund, you, you, you invested in this company or, or majority owner, and it's got this, this big valuation and you want that valuation to go up. Maybe you convince a buddy of yours, invest $15 million, take, take a small piece at this higher valuation. Equity gets priced on the margin, right? Uh -huh. so on the margin. So it goes up. Nice. But then also, hey, your buddy is a private equity firm and and he or she has an investment as well. Well, maybe you give a little $15 million investment there, set the marginal price up. At the end of the day, the dollar amount is the same. You haven't made or lost any money, but the valuations of both of our companies are higher. Yay for us. Yay. I mean, I, mean I, just, <laughs> I just can't imagine the incentive to do that is so, so strong. You are so cynical. I just can't imagine like that hasn't been you done. You sound like me. You're <laughs> supposed to be the young, optimistic, I mean, you know. I'm a responder. I'm a believer in incentives. I think people ha! generally do the incentive that is laid out for them. One hundred percent. I've got one. I've got one big story that I'd love to get your thoughts on. This is something that I don't have any insight on, but 
I, I sort of am developing an opinion on it. So Tether announced that they were going to be buying Bitcoin um, with some percentage of their. Yeah, it's you know, this is not, you know, this is separate from it's 15 percent of their net realized operating profits. So it's That's not, you know, the reserve. The idea is still to do one to one backing in terms of their sort of short term bond portfolio and securities holdings mm-hmm. or cash equivalents, I guess is what you'd call it and the tether that's outstanding. So this isn't a balance sheet thing. They're not like petering in. But what they are doing is reinvesting 15% of their net op- their is, yeah, net operating profit net operating into profit. Uh, Bitcoin. And they're also doing gold, which is sort of interesting as well. What do you think about this? Um. Uh, well, I, and the reason I'm, I'm not you know just answering immediately is I've been thinking about it, right? I mean, you know, news came out a couple of days ago and I've, I've been thinking about it. And, you know, I, I didn't react negatively um, as I would have if if they had said, you know, we're going to do this with with the the asset, like, you know, Terra and Luna and all that that nonsense, um, you know, and make a algorithmic stable coin again. Oh, my God. Um, oxymoron of oxymorons. So, so I, I didn't have a negative reaction like that because they were they were clear that this is our money, right? It's our treasury, um, and I I'm not bold enough to do it. So, so maybe you know because I mean, we have a, a little tiny treasury at, at Morgan Creek and you know, we make some money. And um, I've talked to the guys over the years. You know, should we do a, what Michael Saylor's doing? And should we, you know, should we hold it in Bitcoin and I'm just haven't been bold enough to do it. Um, so I, I, I think it is a good idea. I like the fact of doing a little bit of gold, a little bit of uh, Bitcoin, you know, physical gold, digital gold. Um, if, if the logic is, hey, we accumulate cash by running a business and that cash is being devalued every day that we hold it, then we should move it into a cash alternative, a better store of value. History tells us in periods of, of devaluation of currency, gold works. Right? Lots of history, thousands of years. We don't have as much history with Bitcoin, but the data over the whole period, incontrovertible. It's been an amazing store of value versus the dollar, right? Because we price it in dollars, right? One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. But one Bitcoin priced in dollars has migrated up with lots of volatility. And I have my Embrace Volatility t-shirt over there. I was thinking about wearing it today and I decided to go just with a polo shirt. But, um, but that volatility is, is the thing, right? If, if, if you need that money, like it's working capital to, to fund a new business or you know, hire some people, if you happen to have that, that 64% drawdown, while you're holding it, that, that kind of sucks. If if you have a hundred percent run up, then you get to do more stuff. So if it's a long answer to say, as as a small piece of your long-term treasury, totally for it. And I think a lot of companies should consider it. Um, and you know, if you look at the success, albeit volatility of you know microstrategy i mean he's made money for his corporation and for his shareholders by converting 
a depreciating asset, a devaluing asset, cash, into an appreciating asset, Bitcoin. So yeah, I have some thoughts about this. I have some thoughts, and I look. Do I think buying Bitcoin here and putting it out part of your treasury is like a bad investment? No, I probably think this is going to play out for them. Same thing with gold, but that's my personal investing bias. Yeah, I have always not loved this trend of putting Bitcoin on your balance sheet. I just think that's not your job as a corporation. You're not supposed to be taking directional bets on you and I are we're in the Bitcoin. We're bought into this and view it as, you know, relatively safe. But come on, the majority of the world doesn't view it like that. Like, let's be realistic here for a second. There's risks. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's what you're supposed to do as a company treasury. So I never really loved that. The other thing that I am just starting to get worried about, I just, look, 2022 is in the rearview mirror, but we saw what happened when there isn't transparency. I, instead of Tether buying Bitcoin, I would love it if you could get audited by Big Four. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the recent attestation report, look, it's a step in the right direction. It's from BDO, which is basically number five. It's from the Italian branch. Right. I, I don't know if that means anything, but like, I see this as a proud well, Italian. Was one of the main so, guys Italian? I mean, I don't. Oh yeah, Paolo. I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. Yeah, maybe he is. But come on. I, it, at this point, I just don't think. And what worries me a little bit, I gotta, I gotta just, I guess, get this on the record. And look, I'll recant it if I'm wrong here. I just don't like how opaque Tether is. I'm not a fan. I no. don't see any reason why they can't be more transparent. Get audited by a big four accounting firm. And guys, if there's a reason, come out and say why. And, but I just think it's, look, it's $82 billion of market cap. Something rubs me the wrong way. I got to be honest with you, just pattern matching. I don't like, I don't like it when people come out and buy Bitcoin for what I view as the wrong reasons, which is like trying to get people on your side or some sort of optics about it. I just, yeah. something doesn't, I just I, don't I, like look, it. I, I, I actually agree I like with you. I agree with you that they are probably doing it more for PR than a belief. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. The, the, the place I, I will disagree, although I'm not bold enough, I'm, I'm going to say this, but yet I'm not doing it. I will disagree with, and this is a big if, right? If we, whoever the we is collectively, we believe what we say, so I have to put myself in this camp, that one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And that it is a standard of value that we believe is the better form of money, money being gold, right? Then it actually is incredibly logical and actually probably a fiduciary mandate for an owner of capital particularly when it has shareholders, if it's private capital, you can do whatever the hell you want. But if, if you have shareholders, are you being a good fiduciary if you leave it in a devaluing asset, a currency of some jurisdiction, right? Imagine, imagine being a treasurer in a Venezuelan company and you left it in Bolivars. You're a freaking idiot. Or in pesos in Argentina, you're a freaking idiot. Now, what do they do? They dollarize, okay? Dollar better. Bitcoin better relative to Bolivar or, or pesos. 
So I, I hear you that the volatility part, but the volatility is the, is the perception and the disagreement of the market participants of the value of the network. The ultimate value is fixed. And look, I'm talking the talk and I haven't walked the walk. So I guess I got to go home this weekend and, and put in the order to, to, to put some on, on the treasury. Because when I say it out loud, I can't, I can't argue against it because I do believe that one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And that when I look at that relative to the other assets in which jurisdiction I live, it has accreted value. Yeah. I just, all right. So I have a number of thoughts here, which is I believe in, in so personally, yeah, pers personally, I'm basically my entire net worth is in crypto. So personally, I'm okay taking that risk. Company, I think about things differently. I want to minimize the surface area of risk that I'm taking. On a company basis, BlockWorks, I want to minimize our risk taking to trying to win in the sectors that we compete. And I don't want to compete against that. So then it's like, okay, you know, I'm looking at the treasury. My liability should match my assets, right? So it, even if, right, there is some sort of devaluation event, fuck, it's, it's, it's in dollars, right? So, you know, you're, you're, even if your assets get devalued sort of your liabilities as well so they kind of happen in tandem the other thing that is really it's starting to impact my probably the most influential video i've listened to in the last year because i've just ruminated on a lot go go check out link it up here uh sir paul tucker my colleague jack farley did an interview with this ex-central banker and hearing an ex-central banker talk about it was fascinating because mm. in their mind in his in this person's mind which i'd assume is indicative of how the general apparatus thinks there are just different kinds of money and bonds and dollars are kind of different types of money and there's actually more demand for the bond type of money yeah. and when you think about it like that and i i i'm starting to this is now my mental framework for how i think about staked eth as well those charts that you've seen of the dollar getting devalued not if you hold bonds not if you held this other type of money that was interest-bearing money and that's what you should be holding your assets in as a corporate treasurer. So you don't have as much de-risk. So when I put it all together, it's, look, I wouldn't blame you. I mean. But Michael, but, but that's I, what but, the banks did. Yeah. That's what the banks did, right? Yeah. And then interest rates went up. And in the, the problem is, you said it, it's the asset liability match or mismatch. Yeah. If you need that money in your treasury to pay people every week. You can't afford volatility. Yeah. Right? Because you need the, the right amount of capital. And so, but what, what we are accepting then is that subtle, constant devaluation where the purchasing power is eroding. But we're in it together, right? We're in it together. You're, the employees and the company are in it together. But it, if you don't need it to pay employees every week and you don't need it to pay your lease, let's say you've only paid your lease once a year and you don't need it you know, for a year, 
I could take a little more volatility. And, you know, here's, here's the interesting thing. If we just think about from the start 14 years ago to today, the value of Bitcoin has risen, right? Just has, right? It's higher today than it was 14 years ago, 13 years ago, 12 years ago, 11 years ago. Unfortunately, there's a point where I can say, no, no, but it's down from that point. Like from a week ago, it's down or a month ago, it's down. But over long period of time, it, it's accreted value. Why? Because the dollar got worse. Not because Bitcoin got better. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. But the Bitcoin priced in dollars went up. Part of that was supply and yeah. demand, part of it. So it, the, the, we could talk all day about this when, and, you know. <laughs> but it's an interesting, it's a very interesting. Oh, it's a subject, very interesting man. conversation. It's a very yeah. interesting conversation. For me, it just comes back down to, and I'm not saying, by the way, like Blockwork for, you know, a period of time, you know, we will accept sort of major forms of crypto. We do have, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we don't even hold any on our, on our balance sheet. I would just want to yeah. minimize it and not, it's just like, it's just about minimizing surface area of, of risk that we're taking. That's that's the point that I was trying to make. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfect, it's, it's a great point. And that's why I say it's, it's the asset liability matching. Yeah. Right. If if Tether's saying we're so profitable that we now have accumulated this asset and we're going to hold this asset forever. Yeah. I'm doing this forever. Yeah. The asset that I feel best about relative to currencies around the world, and it's not just dollars, but yen and euros, and is is Bitcoin. We believe in yeah. new money. If you believe that. And it is that bottom part of it's the bottom part of the Coke can. It's a bad analogy because you know when I was to drink that. But at the tippy top of the bucket, you need the most liquid, most secure, and your and the risk you're willing to take is risk of devaluation for certainty of nav. Right? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I because risk can't be eliminated, it just changes form. Everything we do has a risk. So I don't want any NAV risk. I can't afford NAV risk because I have to pay my employees a fixed agreed upon, agreed, upon, agreed upon amount unless they agreed to be paid in Bitcoin, right? The mayor down here, right, in Miami gets paid partly in Bitcoin. So whatever the price is, that's what he's getting, but that's what he agreed to. He didn't agree to a certain number of dollars so then you'd have to adjust the number of Bitcoin based on the, the dollar price. Then the second layer of liquidity, you might say, bonds are going to be okay for me because the risk of a big move in bonds isn't very high, particularly over a long period of time. But unfortunately, that's what the banks did. Now, they were forced. They were coerced, right? They, they were forced to buy the bonds, the borrow from the Fed, buy the bonds, do the arbitrage. And then the Fed raised rates on them and, and you know, blew up their balance sheets. So, but you're right, over a long period of time, that bond money, that moneyness of bonds is superior to the moneyness of cash. But then equities, over a long enough period, you could say the same thing, right? But if, yeah. if, if the equity is going to accrete value because of dividends and the pass-through of inflation, then there is a moneyness to that 
But again, there's higher volatility. So you could go a year or two years or five years. You probably can't go 10 years losing money. Well, it's happened 10 years. There's been a 10-year period where you've lost money, but you can't go a 30-year period. You can't go a 30-year period. There's no 30-year period where you didn't make moneyness, uh, positive moneyness of, of equity. I know. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one. I I guess I gotta think about it a little bit a little bit more, but I know we're we're drawing near the end of our our time here. So um yep. okay, last last thing to just look. I don't mean to pick on or or be mean to to tether, but I do think it is just I just don't love that an industry that is trying to elicit change through transparency, the number one stable coin is this colossal opaque black box and it just doesn't need to be like that. It just doesn't need to be like that. I just I just think that we should push them to do better. And if you're listening to this, we we I I would love to help. I don't know what I could do to help, but yeah, I, just I love I, I'm like, with you. I um look, do better is a pretty good motto for life, right? I strive to do better. And I think your point is well made. We are in an industry that is struggling to gain adoption right. and trust right okay how do you win trust transparency authenticity consistency right. discipline is tether meeting the standard of do better on those four criteria not giving them an a on all those not i'm not okay not giving them an a I'm not giving it an F, but I'm not giving it an A. So do better is, is a good mantra. I agree. <laughs> and, and we all need to do better. I mean, I need to do better. I mean, that day. That's know, it. Life, yeah, yeah, for sure. It, life, Mark, life is about getting better. Best, best hour of my week, my friend. And I would love, I know you're doing the full Bitcoin Miami day today. So I'd love to just hear how things are. We can reconnect next week. and give. Yeah, next week we'll talk about it. Debrief. And um, look, it's uh, me and 25,000 of my closest friends. Awesome. Have All right, Mike. Have fun. Thanks,